0: Welcome back to journal spotting. Have you been wondering how that busy congested main road you commute along every day is bad for your health and the health of your patients? Your ears are in the right place. This is the general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top, practice changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the journal spotters.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Journal Spotting. We've had some pretty awesome feedback from our listeners about our recent episodes, Healthcare and the Impact on the Environment with Chantal Risen, and our British Thoracic Society roundup of some important air pollution research. And we agree with many of you that, as we turn the tide on this COVID pandemic, it's becoming increasingly clear that the next major tidal wave, which is going to threaten our health, lives, and the world as we know it, is the environment. So we're going to try and bring you more episodes on climate change, the environment and health. And today, Dr. Jonathan Hudson, my esteemed colleague, and myself, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, have managed to pin down a brilliant speaker and a world-leading expert to tell us all about the impact of air pollution on our health.
0: Yeah. Hi, everyone. So we're very excited today to be joined by Professor Frank Kelly, whose CV appears to be long enough to take up an entire episode of this podcast don't worry, I'm not going to read out the whole thing. But Professor Kelly is currently the Humphrey Batik Chair in Community Health and Policy at Imperial College London, where he heads up a world-leading centre of air pollution research. He previously served as the director of the Environmental Research Group at King's College London, and he's published hundreds of peer-reviewed papers, written many books, and is very much one of the world's top experts on the health impacts of air pollution. And he advises bodies like the WHO and our very own UK government. It's fair to say that Professor Kelly is very much the godfather of air pollution. That is the sort of good kind of godfather, not the, um, you know, criminal gang kind. Much of his research has laid the groundwork for what we know today about the health impacts of air pollution.
1: We're going to chat to Professor Kelly about what air pollution actually is, its short and long-term health effects, and whether there is anything we can do about it. We hope you enjoy the interview. Frank, thank you so much for joining us on Journal Spotting.
2: Uh, my pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's a really, really important audience I know I'm speaking to. And, you know, we're we're canvassing hard to try and get some of this stuff into the, the medical education agenda. And, you know, I think, you know, that's that's been part of the problem that you guys have just not been told about this, you know, early enough.
0: Yeah, thanks, Frank. It's uh, great to have you with us. Um, You've had a pretty remarkable career and quite an incredible impact in the field of public health and in air pollution specifically. Just looking back, it looks like you started um, way, a long way before your air pollution work. You were experimenting on rat skeletal muscles. Maybe you could um, start by telling us how you were drawn away from the sort of protein turnover in rats and became a world-leading expert in air pollution. How did that journey take place?
2: Well, it's it is an interesting journey, and we've all got to start somewhere, I guess. So, w- what you're mentioning is uh, is to do with my PhD, which I undertook at Queen's University Belfast. I thought I wanted to do medicine to begin with, and uh, unfortunately, I my my love of my life was rugby, and I ended up spending far too much time in the rugby field and not enough time studying. So, I didn't get the grades to get into medicine. So, I did the next best thing. I I went and did a a degree in physiology and uh, physiology in Belfast or Scotland I guess is a four-year degree. First three years is all sitting in a lecture theatre being bored uh, which I was most of the time uh, but the fourth year is a, is a research project and uh, in that fourth year I suddenly became challenged and I found something that I was interested in And uh, and that was research and just finding out new facts and understanding how the body works, undertaking experiments and getting results myself. And so that ended up uh, being offered to do a Ph.D. in in the physiology department. So I started investigating and this is very clinically relevant and was still is, I guess, why muscles can be encouraged to grow in the first place. So here we're talking about, you know, obviously through increased exercise and specifically different types of exercise muscle builders might be undertaking and how you can do that, encourage it synthetically uh, by using anabolic steroids. But more relevant clinically, I suppose, why long-term bed rest leads to muscle loss. To to understand the mechanisms behind all that, then I I needed to do some animal studies and and, and that was... uh, that was generally in rat. So that that was that was the the ignition, I guess, of my interest in how everything in the body works. And how did that
1: get onto air pollution, Frank? So you know, that's a lot. That's a it's a big step
2: from there. It is, <clears throat> and so that was an interesting journey because <laughs> after Belfast, I went to uh, I went to America. I, I had a juvenile diabetes fellowship. Uh, And then I came back to the UK and uh, I came back in an MRC fellowship to the University of Sussex again into a group uh, led by uh, a a muscle biochemist, Jenny Payne at the time. I gave myself one year to find a lectureship because I thought, you know, I can either go down the academic route or I'm going to end up in the pharmaceutical industry. I really wanted to try and succeed in academia. I ended up reading New Scientists and Nature avidly, but just the back six pages, and that's where all the job adverts were. One of those editions that I read, uh, I came across an advert for a new blood lectureship at the University of Southampton in free radical biology. And none of that, except the University of Southampton, made any sense to me because I'd never heard of free radicals. So I ended up going into the library, spending a weekend investigating them. Uh, And there was quite a lot known about them. Uh, Not much had been done in the UK at that point in time, but quite a lot in other uh, countries. And uh, I came out Monday morning, bleary eyed, uh, but an expert in free radicals. I went along to the interview and I blagged my way through it, (laughs) telling them that I was going to cure bronchopulmonary dysplasia, uh, which, as you all know, is, you know, this devastating lung, chronic lung disease in premature babies because they're getting Uh, they require high levels of oxygen to keep them alive. Uh, And that was the beginning of the story, because that took me from muscles into lungs. And uh, that was an interesting five, six years. At that time, I was again thinking about my research career. And again, out of the blue, I came across an advert where there was a, a new position being created in the RAIN Institute at St. Thomas's. They had an interest in starting up some respiratory research. So I ended up getting the job, moving to London. And that really turned me my attention towards air pollution, uh, the sources of air pollution in, in our big cities, and the effects that that was having on population's health in those areas. Yeah, quite a journey.
1: Fascinating. Uh, it's so interesting. We'd love to hear what people's journeys have been like and how they've got
2: to their positions. That's great. Thank you, Frank.
0: And the um, the rugby career, Frank, presumably that's still on hold.
2: Or- <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that finished at quite an early stage. Actually, when I left Southampton, uh, it was the turning up on the Monday morning with the black eye, the, yeah. uh, the you know the arm in a sling, and limping down the lecture theatre. You know, which just got a bit boring. I think for all the students, so I, I finally admitted that you know that old age uh, was 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 taking away my ability to perform sufficiently well. I.e., to avoid all those those nasty tackles. <laughs>
1: amazing yeah. I think that's probably a wise decision <laughs> <laughs> fantastic Frank let's um well let's crack on with the, the topic at hand so we, we are obviously going to talk about the health effects of pollution but i think it'll be useful for well, our listeners but you know for us too um to start with some of the basics now um perhaps we could start with talking about the different types of air pollutants and the air pollution which there are. So, yeah, what are the different types, and
2: which ones should we be worried about? So, generally, we can split air pollution into two main categories. On one side, there is what we call particulate matter. So, these are the small particles. Uh, if they're coming from burning fossil fuel, then they're carbon-based, but they have a chemical com. They have a complex chemical uh, component to them, depending on the on the nature of the fossil fuel. Uh, and then on the other side, we have toxic gases uh, and these gases may be uh, uh, gases such as nitrogen dioxide, NO2, or sulfur dioxide, SO2, or a what we call a secondary pollutant gas, which is ozone, O3, uh, which is produced from precursors, which are produced when we burn fossil fuels, but when they're released then into the atmosphere, you get chemical reactions occurring because of the UV radiation uh, coming from the sun, and you get the generate, you get the splitting of oxygen, and you get the generation then of, of O3. So those in health terms, those are the four biggies. And if I just go back to the particulate matter, then we often hear the terms PM uh, and we 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 size the PM in different categories. So there's PM10. So that's anything less than 10 micrometers in diameter. Uh, PM 2.5, and you've guessed it, less than two and a half microns in diameter. And the third category is uh, ultrafine particles. And they are smaller than 0.01 micrometers, so i.e. 100 nanometers. Now, the important thing about all these categories are they are small enough to enter our airways. Now, PM10 will enter our large airways. They'll go down our trachea, enter our large bronchi, but they won't get much further than that. PM2.5 will go further than that in the small bronchi and even down into the alveoli in some instances. And obviously the ultrafines will get right down into the deep lung. And there is a real debate out there. It's been going on for the last decade whether the ultrafines actually transgress the blood air barrier and go across into the systemic circulation per se or what i actually tend to believe is that these particles are only carriers and they carry the chemicals down into the deep lung and then the chemicals uh, they dissolve off the, the the surface of the particles because they meet the you know the barrier the respiratory tract lining fluid and they dissolve off and then they can easily enter the uh type 1 epithelial cells and move across into the circulation it doesn't matter which is correct the bottom line is the products do get into into the into the blood and they do move around the body
0: interesting and and i guess in a in a broad sense once those particles or once humans are exposed to those particles what are the health effects in a broad sense do you have a framework with which you use to think think about what the health effects are
2: we have an ever moving framework Most of the early work came out in uh, the 90s from the US. Two two large studies. One was called the Six Cities Study, Uh, basically, and and this was undertaken by Harvard School of Public Health. Basically, what they looked at was the concentration of these small particles, PM2.5, in six different cities across the US, ranging from a really industrial city to a really uh retirement city where there wasn't any industry or any any coal mining going on or anything like that so we went from stoubeville which was really really dirty to portage which is really really clean and what the investigators found was that life expectancy in those cities lined up dramatically in a linear fashion with the concentration of pm 2.5 in those particular cities now this At this point in time, it was nearly too good to be true, not really believable. uh, And this was in 93. But very soon after that, the American cancer uh, study, which involves 153 metropolitan areas across the U.S., undertook the same type of analysis where they went out and they measured the air pollution concentrations in respect to PM 2.5 in those different cities and they found exactly the same relationship. So there was something that was couldn't be couldn't be confounded away by other uh, you know things that you can measure when you bring in you know uh, socioeconomic status, smoking status, all these you know dietary uh, quality, etc. There was nothing that really shifted this relationship. So that was the start really of this story which goes along the lines that if you live for a long period of time, we're talking about decades, in an area which has got higher levels of these small particles, then you're going to have a shorter lifespan. And that was the beginning of the story. And since then, that story has just evolved because initially it was all to do with the lungs, the obvious target. But subsequent to that, we found that, in fact, the same relationships were robustly uh, secure in respect of looking at specific diseases such as cardiovascular disease. Uh, That was the the next big one. Then subsequently, we went on to some of the neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's uh, and uh, Parkinson's. And uh, more recently, I guess, into the birth outcomes. Uh, work which is being done around uh, premature delivery, uh, birth weight, etc. Uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, this is all what we call epidemiology. It's all association. Uh, and clearly, what we need beyond that, those, though, you know, they're, they're, they are robust relationships, but what we need beyond that is we need the Robust understanding from the toxicology and the biology side of things to understand how how breathing in these tiny particles over a long period of time could lead to the development of all these different diseases.
0: That's interesting. And, and which I mean, which organ system or which area do you think we have the most evidence for it? Is it cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease? Would you say or?
2: I, I would say initially it was respiratory disease. So we had a lot of associations with asthma exacerbation, COP de- development, etc. cetera, because of all the background research around smoking and COPD, et cetera, you know, uh, and bronchitis and emphysema. But because cardiovascular disease is, you know, it's the number one disease in developed countries, that's really where there was the power to, you know, e- keep asking these questions and as a subs, you know, as a consequence of that, I would say that's where we have the strongest evidence base now. There's just there are dozens and dozens of studies in, in in Europe. And if you look across the world, it's hundreds of studies which have demonstrated this relationship between you know long term exposure to poor air quality and increased cardiovascular incidence. Sorry, Frank. How how do you get the you have the robust
1: association? I mean, how can we prove causality in these cases um apart from having a look at the the biology and getting that side of things we can't redo randomized controlled trials very easily in this sort of area
2: no and if you just if you just think about smoking smoking and lung cancer you mean that was a what was a 60 year journey uh you know and there's still you know, we still don't understand why some people smoke, you know, how many cigarette packs a day and, and don't get lung cancer. But, you know, there's not many of you us know, so would argue that there is not this association between the two and a strong association. And it's the same with air quality. It's a very, very difficult question. Now, I think what we need to do is take away a very clear message here that air quality, it, it doesn't kill you early. Uh, it contributes to an earlier death on top of other uh, components and we know that you know we have a high air quality in cities uh, in cities we also have you know sociodemographic gradients uh, where people you know may not have the quality of housing the quality of diet uh, that they you know would would you know give them optimal health Exposure to air pollution is just another one of those components. However, I do think it is an important one because, you know, we're breathing every minute, whatever it is, 10,000 litres of air a day. uh, And we're taking, you know, our lung is, it's our facing organ to the environment. And that environment is, we now know, complex. Uh, There's lots of toxic components in there. And to me, it's not that surprising, you know, having having considered this for a while now, it's not that surprising that if you're being exposed to these components day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out for decades, that is going to have a toll. And if I can come back then to the to really what you're asking me, yes, the toxicology and the biology is really important to understand this. And so one of, the, one of the interesting things I have been luckily to be involved with is, is ask, actually doing challenge studies in humans, not in animals, but doing challenge studies in human volunteers with air pollution. We, we don't have exposure chamber facilities in the UK even now to do this. We tried to get them 20 years ago, but didn't manage. But in the end, I was very fortunate to end up collaborating with clinical colleagues at the University of Umeå in northern Sweden. Now, we all know that the Swedes are very environmentally conscious. They've been ahead of us for decades in this area. So they they had built an exposure facility at the university. And if anybody's been up near the Arctic Circle in Umeå, there's not an awful lot to do those medical students outside sitting in the lecture theaters so we had a we had a great cohort of volunteers who would come in to the chamber and we would expose them to no2 uh, we've exposed them uh, on other occasions to ozone or to diesel exhaust uh, more recently it's been uh, wood burning exhaust because there's a great worry now about biomass and what we were, what my colleagues were able to do was to take those students and bring them after an hour exposure or two hour exposure whatever the protocol was bring them out take them in the bronchoscopy suite and undertake a bronchial lavage and take some biopsies uh, from the lung wall and that fundamental research demonstrated very clearly that if you if you're exposed to any of those pollutants in sort of real world levels then your body will respond to them immediately you will, you will get the signals being generated, uh, the cytokines, the chemokines, which will lead to the attraction of the white blood cells onto the surface of the lung. So neutrophils, macrophages, lymphocytes, et cetera. Uh, and why are they coming over? Because they think there's foreign entities there. You know, they're there to kill the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi, whatever. But there's none of those there. It's small carbon particles or its gaseous pollutants, which have damaged uh, an end the epithelial cell. And uh, those white cells are undergoing frustrated phagocytosis because, you you know, you know from your uh, your lectures before that white cells produce free radicals and they produce proteases to kill those foreign invading uh, bacteria, etc., in the absence of those they can't kill non-viable particles or gases so what you get imagine that you're in oxford street working or shopping every day walking up and down you're being exposed to all that pollution and your body your lung is responding to that but it's doing it in a way which is not beneficial to you because it's not it's not getting rid of the pollution and in fact it's producing entities which end up damaging your own lung tissue and imagine that happening you know over decades so that's why we think that pollution can contribute to these injurious uh, diseases which we associate with them.
0: frank a lot of our listeners will be sort of on call in hospitals around London or in GP practices around the country and what sort of health conditions that they're seeing every day are, are likely to be affected by air pollution? You know, how, how are the patients that they're seeing affected by this problem?
2: Well, the bottom line is we 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 started we started looking at lung diseases and air pollution, but in fact every organ in the body now, there is some link to the quality of the air that you breathe. I mean, there was a Royal Society of Physicians report that came out in 2016, and it's called Every Breath We Take. And it was a very good summary of the situation at that point in time. And it it basically says that you you start with the unborn child in the womb. There is evidence now that you can see uh, particulate pollutants uh, accumulating in the placenta, Uh, of of women who are exposed to too much uh, particulate pollution. And the epidemiology says that often in those cases, those children are either born prematurely or of low birth weight. You then have the studies which we were involved with in London with school children, uh, and this was in East London about three or four years ago, where they were living in close to busy roads or going along those busy roads to schools on those busy roads, uh, every, every weekday. And they were being exposed to very high levels of nitrogen dioxide. Those kids were shown to have a reduced lung growth and development. And you all know that, you know, we're born with very small lungs, very immature lungs. They, you know, are. We grow, our chest gravity expands, our lungs grow up to about the age of 20. So these these kids, they were sort of 12, 14-year-olds, they had about a 10% deficit in lung development, lung growth. And the big the big problem is that if they if they didn't catch that up, and that's work that's ongoing at the moment, but if they don't catch that lung growth up, they get to the age of about 20 when everything stops in respect to growth. And they carry that deficit with them then for the rest of their life. And we, you know, we all know that sort of lung function is a very good measure of of, of general health. You know, as we move into old age, so that's. So we're we're talking about the unborn child. We're talking about children. Uh, we're talking about then uh, adults with with various diseases such as diabetes. Uh, we're talking about moving into the elderly, and as I said before about cardiovascular disease uh, and neurodegenerative diseases. So all of these have been epidemiologically linked with living for long periods of time, breathing poor air quality. So it's it's right across the age spectrum.
1: Thanks, Frank. Yeah, I think it's um, and it's something we have to be... It's difficult. We can all be very aware of it in our hospitals and very aware of it that uh, all the conditions we're seeing may be caused by us, but I suppose um piecing it piecing it apart and saying, oh, this must be this will be related to air pollution or or something else can be extremely difficult. Um just just to get back a little bit on some particles and different types. I remember there's been some news and some talk about these microplastics and aerosols well airborne microplastics and things like that.
2: Whereabouts do they
1: fit into all of this and what sort of problems can they cause?
2: So that's relatively new understanding uh, and it still is very much elementary research. So when, if I take you back, uh, my team operate what's called the London air quality network. So that is the regulatory network of uh, air quality monitors across the 33 London boroughs. So by law, the boroughs have to measure air quality, report air quality on a regular basis. And eventually all this goes up to Europe, or at least, you know, it used to go up to Europe to make sure that we were adhering to the the, the laws. So we, in doing this work, we also were very interested in what was driving those air quality measurements and you know ultimately it won't be a surprise to any of our listeners that in major cities transportation is a major source of air pollution and when we talk about transportation we're talking about fossil fuel burning petrol diesel exhaust emissions so with all that understanding of course london has been moving forward uh, over the last 20 years you know, with the mayor, the direct mayoral elections that came in in 2000, we were able to work with with the the the, the mayor, of the GLA, and TfL to introduce in 2003 the congestion charging zone, which was to reduce the number of vehicles coming into the city. It wasn't really anything to do with health at the time; it was really just to try and improve congestion and decrease uh, increase speeds really and decrease the number of vehicles on the road. But very quickly, I mean, the mayor also had a health agenda, and the second part of the the, uh, the scheme was really to try and improve the emissions from the remaining vehicles that were coming into London, and that led to the introduction of the low emission zone in two thousand and eight, uh, which it had it had sort of grand uh, outcomes in mind. But for a number of reasons, uh, one being the financial collapse and around that point in time, it didn't really end up delivering the way it should have done. But moving on rapidly in 2019, of course, we had the ultra low emission zone introduced to London. And that is really, really uh, a very effective scheme. And uh, hopefully that will be expanded out further in October this year to Include everything within the north and south circular. And this has really led to a big drop in emissions from the tailpipe of vehicles. So that's all good. But when you actually then, you know, you're still looking at all the data about the emissions from all the different sources. We now have a situation in London where there are more emissions from an individual vehicle not coming from the exhaust but coming from other parts of the vehicle so what i'm talking about here are the brakes the tires and the road wear so that's really an incredible fact i was so astounded by it when i first saw the data but we're we're doing so well at the tailpipe uh, all these other sources are becoming dominant so drilling down on those sources a little bit more this is about five years ago, I looked at what the type of particles were that were coming off the tires and the brakes. Now, the brakes we worry about because they're often metal-based particles and they're particularly toxic. Uh, But when I looked at the tires, I was really surprised because I thought tires were rubber. But no, they're not. Not anymore. Tires are majorly plastic. So... All these particles that are coming off the tires are microplastics. So we looked at our analytical abilities to measure these microplastic particles as opposed to the the black carbon particles coming from the exhaust. And we find that the methodologies weren't really robust enough. So we had to spend a couple of years developing the methodology to be able to pick out these microplastics and, when we did that and we started analysing the air in London, we find lots of microplastic. And one of the major sources is our, you know, is the cars on the road, our transport sector. This is new. We're just beginning to understand concentrations and, and sources and all the rest of it. But the big question, which I know you're going to ask me then, is, you know, does this matter? And the bottom line is we don't know because we haven't done those types of experiments yet. We don't understand the toxicology, if there is toxicology. We don't understand the health effects, if there are health effects. We are a little worried because there's a lot of potential here, but we honestly are at the beginning of another journey.
0: It sounds like you need to find some uh, keen medical students.
2: Absolutely. We've got a lot of interesting projects (laughs) that are going to become available
1: what sort of incentives do they get, Frank? Do you do you give them a a pack lunch with a Snickers, or do they get a bit of money? What do they?
2: Yeah, it's all it's very very highly regulated. You can imagine, you know, doing bronchoscopy, doing exposures to potentially harmful yeah. substances, doing bronchoscopies. It requires some enticement, and yeah, they they were they were well supported. Shall we Good. say? lovely. But um, the other thing is, I would say, is they you know they came to it with a real. The ones that the volunteers, it was about, you know, for each study, we usually had somewhere between 15 and 20 students and each one would have to do it twice. They would be exposed to the pollutant. And on another occasion, four or six weeks apart, they would be exposed to pure air. And what you're doing is as individuals, you're comparing their responses. And that's a really powerful experimental design. But the follow on from that was. You know, after doing all these studies, you know, and, and, we, and we must have published a dozen papers together, and understanding the mechanisms behind it all, uh, you know, exposure chamber uh, studies—they're great. You can control everything, but they are artificial. So, at one point, I suddenly—you know—I had this light bulb effect, and I thought, well, actually. We can do this in the real world, because if you think of Oxford Street, the only thing that's on allowed on Oxford Street transport wise are red buses and black taxis, all diesel uh, fuel vehicles. So we ended up doing with, with various colleagues uh, at Imperial and other places doing studies with volunteers, initially healthy volunteers, but subsequently asthmatics, uh, people with COPD just walking them up and down Oxford Street for for 90 minutes versus on another occasion, walking them around the pond in Green Park and look, you know, measuring the lung function, taking blood samples, measuring all the the cytokine responses, et cetera. Uh, and, And some of the studies look at cardiovascular effects as well. So, Actually, now we don't need an exposure chamber in the UK. We actually have specific locations we can take people. The the latest iteration of that is actually, believe it or not, is the London Underground, where there is a particular atmospheric environment down there which we wonder about.
0: Yeah, there was a study that came out a few years ago about the Northern Line having horrific air quality. That was. Asked. I don't know if that's uh, yeah. that you guys, yeah, yeah, not been on the Northern Line for a while, so yeah.
2: So we've we've measured air quality on all the London lines. And the older and the deeper the line is, then the higher the level of particulate pollution. Uh, and that's because it's, you know, it's you've got problems with ventilation, uh, you've got problems with age, etc. But the, the interesting thing for us from res- a researcher point of view is the nature of the particulate matter down there, although it's very high, is very different from the particulate matter above ground. It's all to do with, you know, the generation of particles from the, the wheels on the tracks and the uh, picking up the electric supply uh, to the trains. Frank,
1: thank you. Uh, so you've mentioned a few things which have, we've been doing in the UK. some you know, policies and um, low emission zones, things like that. How, how is the UK actually doing regarding sort of acting on air pollution? And, and perhaps how does this compare to the rest of the world and what they're doing?
2: So, yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think there's probably a couple of components to it. The first one, uh, let's focus just on the UK itself. Now, as, as you probably will remember, the UK government was taken to court three times by an organization called Client Earth because it was breaking NO2 exposure concentrations. And as a con- that was all to do with, with diesel-based vehicles which, unfortunately, the manufacturers were telling us they weren't producing that much NO2 because they were doctoring the, the tests in the factory. But when they were out in the, in the roads in the cities, then they were producing loads of NO2. So as a consequence of that, the government was encouraged to do something about it, and it has, it has reached out to all the cities across the UK where there is a problem, uh, and there's a lot, and encourage them to bring in clean air zones. Now, that program is, for you know a whole range of reasons, has not accelerated, has not really moved forward that fast, certainly not near the speed it should have done. So, in general, the UK is not doing nearly as well as it probably should do. The exception to that is London, and London has led... The world, I would say, in trying to do something about its air quality challenges. So we've talked about the congestion charging zone, the low emission zone, now the ultra low emission zone, and and that is more recently that has been down to the ambition of the current mayor, who is an asthmatic, has asthmatic children, really understands the challenge of poor air quality, and you know has it on his agenda to do something about it. So there has been no schemes introduced to really try and improve air quality. But alongside that, there's also been a lot of activity on the public transport sector side. So we have a fleet, I think it's the largest fleet in Europe, of buses. We've got 9,000 buses in London. And as of Monday, every one of those buses are the highest emission quality that you can currently get. We call that Euro six. So there's been an enormous investment within the bus fleet uh by the current administration. The other the other major diesel fleet in London is the black cabs. So we have twenty three thousand black cabs in London and it was recognised that those emissions needed to be controlled as well. So since January 2019 Any new license issued for a black cab, and you do get several thousand turning over every year, apparently, had to be a zero emission capable vehicle. So you've probably all seen the TX5s, TX6s, these wonderful new electric black cabs that we have in London. So I believe we now have about 4,000 of them on the road. Yeah, it's a small proportion of 23,000, but it's certainly moving in the right direction. So London really has done a lot. And if you look at the air quality data that we're producing, you know, across London over the last couple of years, because of the changes in the bus fleet, because of the changes in the black cabs, because of the ultra low emission zone, we are seeing real improvements in air quality in this city for probably the first time in decades. So it's very, very encouraging. Now, to move on to the second part of the question, and you said, how are we doing in comparison to the rest of the world? Well, you know, we, there's two comparisons there. There's comparing us against our equivalents, which is, you know, other major cities in Europe and North America, et cetera, where there are similar problems. I think we're holding our own. Some cities are doing better than us. I mean, Amsterdam, if you've been there, you've seen the number of cyclists out on the roads, etc. Uh, it's really, really fantastic. Uh, Barcelona's been doing a lot of good stuff as well. But London, London is pretty well holding its own in that respect. But where we then are not looking at comparative cities, where we're looking maybe towards the east, then the situation's totally different. And you know, in China up to, you know, a few years ago, they had, you know, they had the, pro- they had the old problems that we had, which was all the coal f- fired power station emissions, uh, which we had in the fifties and sixties, which we dealt with with the Cleaner Act. But on top of that, they also had all the transport emissions, uh, which we currently have as well. But again, China in particular have brought in a lot of measures, which, or go which are have improved air quality and will improve it further. But if you then go to other countries like India and Pakistan, et cetera, then unfortunately, you know, because of all the things I've just been saying, and because of the widespread use, certainly in rural communities, of, of biomass for cooking and heating, et cetera, then, you know, there they're are a generation or two behind this and they they really have serious I think they have serious air quality problems implicating on population and health still.
0: You've mentioned a few of the sort of wins for London air quality, this, the ULES and um, electrifying taxis and things like that. I mean, uh, would you agree that there's still work that needs to be done? And if so, you know, what are the key levers that still need to be pulled in in your opinion? You know, where, where do policies still need to go to, to improve air quality? Not maybe just in London, for, throughout the UK as well.
2: So well, yeah. Any any city uh, really. London London is just the biggest city in the UK with the biggest problems. But all those cities, other cities, have got problems as well. They're just slightly less, probably. Uh, where do we need to go? We did an interesting piece of work a few years ago where we uh, we we produced what's called the London atmospheric emissions inventory. So that actually is a big model which has all the different sources of pollutants which the city's producing. So, you know, the transport sector, the aviation sector, trains, homes, industry, et cetera. And what we found was that if we, once you have all that model sitting before you, what you can do is you can say, I'm gonna take all those diesel buses and replace them with electric buses, what is going to be the benefit of that in respect of decreased emissions, improved air quality? So what we did was we took all the vehicles, all the private vehicles in London that uh, move about London, and we said let's make them all electric. And when we did that, we find that we still had a PM problem in London. We were still exceeding the uh, the WHO guideline, and that really hit it, you know, hit home to me what the size of this problem is so i'm i'm on record by saying yes we need cleaner vehicles but we also need a lot fewer vehicles and therefore i'm very much into better public transport clean public transport and a lot more active travel where it is possible my ideal is that we would just pedestrianize the whole center of london and people would walk and cycle or scoot or whatever to get where they need to get. We'd come into our, you know, our outlying train stations or outlying tube stations or move across the London underground. <clears throat> but oh, above ground, we would just we would just have, you know, beautiful seat, seat scenery, pocket gardens, whatever. We would have, you know, we had of a a mini Amsterdam, you know, in London. And I think it would be it would be better for air quality. It would be better for our mental health. And, you know, we'd wonder in five years' time, how the hell did we, you know, did we live in that that <laughs> horrible, noisy, polluted city?
1: Yeah. It sounds dreamy. I love the idea of it. I, last year, I mean, I'm sure well, I'm sure, everyone, all of our listeners heard about it, or many of them did, there was quite a, a brown, groundbreaking case where it was about uh, Ella Adukissi-Deborah's death who was she was an asthmatic a young girl asthmatic who died and it was ruled last year that air pollution was a contributing factor to her death and this was quite groundbreaking because this is the first time that this ever happened so do you think this is going to have an impact on on policies and the government and sort of force the hand even further to take things further
2: i i don't know i hope so uh because i think this is an important step forward uh Previously, uh, all we've ever been able to say is that we have evidence that if you live in a area of pollution, higher pollution for a long period of time, you have a higher incidence, likelihood of developing one of these chronic diseases, which we discussed earlier, or dying slightly earlier. There has never been any ability or studies done which actually look at the individual and the impact of air pollution on the individual. Other than some studies with asthmatics where we've looked at exacerbation rates or COPD looking at exacerbation rates. So for the coroner to actually look at the evidence and say, yes, there does appear to be a link between what this child was breathing in over a period of a few years, and her hospitalisation uh, times and her eventual demise—that is a big step forward, and I think it will—it will lead to enlightenment. It will lead to you know new realisation that the the air that we breathe can have this potential Im- negative impact on our health and I think in this interesting year when you know we've just gone through Brexit we're going to have our new environment bill eventually hopefully by the autumn time it will be I think an important component of the jigsaw which hopefully will lead the government to bringing in appropriate guidance around the quality of the air in the UK.
0: Um, That brings us on quite nicely, Frank, to um, this idea that maybe there are quite a few healthcare professionals listening and that are out there that are aware of the issues and aware that air pollution is a significant contributor to, you know, their patients' comorbidities and is also putting their their patients at increased risk of poor health outcomes. How can healthcare professionals take this information forward? You know, should we be having more conversations with our patients? Should we be getting involved in some sort of um, campaigns? You know, what, what? how do you see the role of healthcare professionals?
2: Well, I, I think education is paramount here. Uh, and I don't think the your average healthcare professional has got the time to explain the intricacies of all this to, you know, each of their patients, uh, if they are living in uh, an area of uh, higher pollution. But I think they should have, you know, at their fingertips, they should have the resources to be able to point their patients in the direction of that information. You know, the same way as, you know, you know, we have over time been advising people not to smoke or to restrain their alcohol intake. I think you know, if if health professionals understand where people live, where people work, uh, they then can, make a quick decision whether this is something which may be important or not, and then, uh, say, have the facilities at their fingertips to be able to bring this to the patient's attention. I mean, there is a lot that can be done. For example, we worked with the City of of, of London uh, a few years ago to produce a smartphone app which... Allows you. It's like it's like it's like uh, Google Maps. So if you put in your origin and your destination of your journey, it will immediately give you you know that route. Uh, But R one called Clean Air, uh, or sorry, called City Air. R one will immediately give you a second route, uh, which will say, oh, sorry, this is going to take you ten minutes longer, but you will decrease your exposure to particulate matter PM two point five by 20%. And then it'll give you a third route and will say, oh, sorry, this will take you 20 minutes longer, but it's taking you through a few parts or parks or whatever, and it'll decrease your exposure to PM 2.5 by 50%. So there are, we do know where the pollution is in the city. We do know where the pollution is lower in the city. And so there are, you know, facilities to help people make decisions to decrease their exposure when they're out and about, uh, and I think we need, you know, we need to get that into the health sector system uh, uh, because it's 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 very easy and it's very useful. The second stage to all of this, and we haven't touched on this at all tonight, and that is the fact that everything we've been talking about is ambient or outdoor pollution exposures, but in fact, we all spend most of our time indoors whether it's in our homes or whether it's our schools or whether it's in our work facilities. And you can get exposed to a lot of pollution indoors. There are are specific indoor sources of pollution, such as gas cooking, uh, such as, you know, wood-burning stoves or open fires, candle-burning, certain chemicals that we use to clean our homes. These are all things which, you know, most people don't think about. But they may, you know, over time be having a big influence on what we're being exposed to. So again, that's the sort of information we need to make readily available in an understandable manner, so that a initially health professionals, you know, can understand that and and pass it on. But if need be, explain the innuendos of all that to to their patients. So what you're telling
1: me, Frank, is I should. Tell my wife not to buy any more expensive candles.
2: That's exactly what I do. <laughs> you paid what for that? <laughs> yeah. <going>
0: <laughs> Barney's doing a very good job there, pretending he's not the one buying the expensive
2: candles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Frank, I just—I'm going to take a gamble here and say that I think you're a relatively optimistic person. Hopefully, uh, are you feeling optimistic about where we're going?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely am at this point in time. But if you'd asked me that question even five years ago, I would have said, you know, I've been knocking my head against this wall for 25 really? years. And, you know, we still have enormous challenges ahead. But in the last five years, I think, you know, both at the, the central government level, uh, the client earth cases, the conversations I've been having with DEFRA for the new Environment Bill recently, and what I've seen happening in London—real data that we're getting now about improvements—I'm, I am optimistic that we can solve this issue. Good to that's hear. That's wonderful.
1: That, yeah, that's really good to hear, Frank. Actually, I think that's, uh, and it's something which the listeners need to hear because they're hearing so much negativity about it. Actually, hearing some positive messages is is brilliant.
2: It will cost money, of course. But you know the bottom line is if we do the if we do the the health benefit analysis and the economic cost analysis, we will get much more bang for our buck if we spend on health care and uh, now and improve our quality as opposed to the costs to the health service mm. down the line. It's pretty clear.
1: That's wonderful. I think we can all dream about those those that that green that garden of London. They'll call it and with (laughs) it and it sounds wonderful Frank I think um we we, I think we've talked about so much and it's been it's been fascinating and given everyone a really fantastic overview of the topic and I suppose what needs to be done and if you have a few key take-home points for our listeners about whatever you like the situation or what people can do
2: what would those those points be well uh you know, if if you're interested in the, in the topic, and hopefully you are, you know, try and read up a little bit about it and understand, you know, the, 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 the nature of it, the different challenges where we're being exposed to different pollutants outdoors and indoors. And the bottom line is, we're all part of the problem, you know, in one way or the other. Our lifestyles contribute to the issue. And... If, if you can start off by thinking, if, you know, if you've got a family, if you can start off by thinking, how do I, you know, minimize the health impacts to my family, to my children? Uh, that's a good start. And then, you know, maybe when you've made those changes, think about, you know, how else can I sort of benefit my community? And if we all do that, uh, I think, you know, we're all heading in the right direction to improve air quality, you know, and, and improve citizen health.
1: That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Frank. I know you're a busy man. It's been fantastic.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Special thanks to promotion team Abby and Isabel, logo designer Natalia Florman, and animations expert Costa. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.